Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to discuss the story dubbed The Sea Orphan. And this one is a wild ride. Like, I had never heard of it before. Had you? I had not. It's insane that this even happened. But the story involves murders at sea, as well as how a little girl was able to survive. And again, it blows my mind that she was able to. It really is amazing that she survived. And also that like, one that it happened, but as we go through the story of like how she particularly survived with what she faced, I'm like, oh my gosh. I couldn't have done it. And I learned about a new type of fish. Me too. I'm glad. <laughs> it's like, what type of fish is this? We'll, we'll get to that portion. But when I was researching, I'm like, I thought this was the same thing. <laughs> it is <Yeah>. not. <laughs> but it makes me feel better because I thought that I just didn't know things about the ocean more so than everyone else did. I mean, none of us know anything about the ocean, so you're... That's fair. That's fair. Doing great, sweetie. <laughs> it's not a basilosaurus. It's the lemon of the sea. I know everything about the basilosaurus. You like how lame they are? <laughs> like how they can't survive in the place that they were designed to like be in? They were too good for this world, okay? <laughs> Their bones were too brittle for this world. <laughs> Still my favorite thing. So let's start out talking about the family that this story involves. And that's the Duperalt family. And they lived in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And the family members consisted of Arthur, who was a 41-year-old optometrist. Jean, his wife, she was 38. Brian, their first child, he was 14. And then the person we're going to center the story around, her name's Terry Jo. She was 11 when this took place. And so everything we'll be talking about is from her perspective for the most part. And something to note, because you're going to need to know this later, is that she had blonde hair. She loved animals and her family. And she enjoyed spending time with them in wooded areas around the house, which I think is like a typical 11-year-old. Like she liked to go on little adventures with her siblings. And she really loved her dad, too, which was very sweet. Yeah. And then the last member of the family was Renee, and she was only seven. So overall, this family was a very happy family. They loved each other very much. And all of the children did really well in school. And Arthur, the father, he had always dreamed, and he shared this with his family, of wanting to vacation by cruising somewhere, and especially somewhere warm. Okay. Because they were over their winters in Wisconsin. I mean, fair. It's very cold there from what I understand about Wisconsin. Yes, yes. So for years, he would tell his family, like, I want to take you guys somewhere great. It's going to be warm. It's going to be awesome. And he loved boats. So he would always tell them, like, whatever they were going to plan was going to involve a boat. Okay. And his biggest dream was that he wanted to live on a boat and go around the world with his family. I love that. Which sounds really sweet. Yeah. I was like, that is really sweet that, like, that's his dream. Because some people are like, I want to have, like, insert fancy car or big house. And he's like, I just want to travel the world with my family. Right. Right. And so what he wanted to do is one day... His plan was to charter a boat and to see how his family did living on the water for like a short time. Smart. And then hopefully increase that, you know, amount of time on the water. Okay, that makes sense. So the family, they all saved up 
and they were finally able to make the trip happen in 1961. I feel like it's even more impressive, given what we're going to talk about, that it was 1961, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they chartered a two-masted Chrysler sailboat that was called the Blue Bell and planned to sail from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to the Bahamas. Their plan was to spend a week, again, trying life out at sea, and then they were going to try that extended trip. They also hired Julian Harvey to captain the ship. And from what we understand, he had previously worked on the Blue Bell, so we think it may have been like a package deal that like... With the boat comes Harvey. And Harvey was 44 years old and he was a former Air Force fighter pilot and he had a lot of experience sailing. He also brought his wife, Mary Dean Jordan, and she did things like cook and help out on the boat. From what we've seen, most sources refer to her as Dean. And she was an aspiring writer and a former Transworld Airlines flight attendant. So it seems like she was probably like very into travel. Yeah. So like this was probably something that she was like, oh, excited about. And like, right. There's nothing else to do but write on that boat, you know, like when you're not working anyway. Yeah, I feel like both of them had like good travel experience and it sounds like it should have been a great plan, right? Like everything should have been great. Yeah, I would have been like, yes, this is a solid situation. We're doing great. So the trip began on November 8th of 1961 and the first four days went really well. They did things like snorkeling and like spent a lot of time together and were really enjoying themselves. And they sailed during the day. Makes sense. And then on Sunday is when things started to change a bit. They stopped to fill out some paperwork to return from the Bahamas to the U.S. And they went to the office of Sandy Point Village Commissioner Roderick W. Pinder to do this. And when Arthur was talking to Roderick, he said, this has been a once in a lifetime vacation and we'll be back before Christmas. Okay, so they're loving it. They're telling people they're loving it, right? Exactly. I have two siblings, but one of them is significantly older than me. So like family vacations that I have was really with the one that was closer to me in age. And I can't say that when we when one of us was 11, that my parents would describe family vacations as like going great because <laughs> we were like shitbirds. We were two years <laughs> apart, though, not four. But like we were shitbirds. So like they were like, we're doing this. But we can't say we're having a great time, you know? But this doesn't seem like that. This seems like like sitcom family good, right? Yeah. And yeah. so they even sailed at night for the first time, which was probably pretty neat. And Terry Joe remembers everyone being so excited because it was something new. And later that evening, Dean made everyone chicken cacciatore and a salad. And it was overall a good night. And, and again, everything seemed like it was going great. Yeah. So they're sailing at night. It's the first time. They all ate dinner. Everyone's settling down. And so Terry Joe decides to head to bed, and she believes that it was around 9 p.m. She was sleeping in a small cabin at the back of the boat. And from what I understand, normally Renee was also there, too. But she had decided to stay with her parents and brother that night. So just Terry Joe went on to bed. And where the rest of her family was staying was in the main cabin, which was normally the kitchen and dining room during the day. But it converted into a bedroom at night. So it seems like that's where everyone would hang out all the time. Okay, that makes sense. Now, here's where everything just changes. In the middle of the night, Terry Joe woke up to her brother yelling. And he was yelling, help, daddy, help. Oh, no. Along with noises that sounded like running and stomping. Yeah. And so she woke up abruptly, was scared. She laid in bed, terrified. And then all of a sudden, the noises and the voices stopped. After about five minutes... She went out of her cabin into the main cabin, and that's where she saw her mother and her brother lying in a pool of their own blood. 
And she also believes that she saw a rifle. But again, like, she woke up really fast. Yeah. She didn't know what was happening. And she's just 11, right? So, like, you're old enough where I feel like you can understand what some of these things are, but, like, not to know how bad the fucking world is. Especially, like, this is before the internet, right? You were an 11-year-old living in the world, not, like, knowing the trauma of the, the planet. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I would imagine it's the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere, right? Like there's no lights. There's no street lights. There's nothing like that. You're in the middle of the ocean. So it's pitch black. Mm-hmm. And so you only have what light is coming from these rooms, right? Yeah. She goes up and sees this and she has no idea what's happening. She has no idea how it happened. She doesn't know if some something, someone's on the ship. She has no idea. So she was obviously scared. And she went to look for her father, right? That's what I would do, right? She knew where her mom and brother were. She didn't know where her father and her younger sister were. So then as she's looking around, Harvey runs up to her. And she did give an interview years later. And she said that she just felt very trusting, right? Like she had just spent four days with this man and everything was fine. So she was trusting. Well, and he's like taking care of the family too, right? Like her parents are trusting him. Exactly, exactly. But at this point, he shoves her back down below deck. He says, like, get down mm, there. Don't like that. And she just took it as maybe something bad happened and he didn't want her to see whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, I could see why she would think that. Yeah. So she goes back below deck and she's just waiting. She's not sure what's going on. She's not sure what's happening. But not long after, she started to see what she described as oily smelling water coming into her room. Mm. So she's still, you know, kind of frozen, right? She's so scared. She doesn't want to move. Of course. But she starts to think, oh, no, the ship is sinking. And at that moment, that's when the captain, Harvey, walked into her doorway. Now, this was a little weird. He walked in into the doorway and he stood there for just a minute and he's holding the rifle. He says nothing. He just like stares at her for a minute. I don't like that. And then he just turns and walks away like walks up the stairs away. So at this point, she's still lost. She has no idea what's happening. She's just sitting there like, all right, I just saw something horrific. And now he comes down here, doesn't say anything and walks away. And she's kind of contemplating like what to do. Yeah, which I mean, again, feels really, really fair. And so since the room was filling up with water, she kind of she unfroze. And that's when she ran up to the upper deck. And the water was about waist deep in her room when she left and her mattress had began to float. So when Terry Joe got to the upper deck, she saw the ship's dinghy and rubber life raft floating beside the boat on the port side. And it started to drift away. And that's when she saw Harvey jump overboard and get onto it. Terry Joe recalls watching him drift away on it, which like, what a hopeless feeling. Yeah. After watching him leave, she remembered that there was still a cork life float in the main cabin. What quick fucking thinking. Like, I feel like I would just be like in full panic mode. The fact that her survival skills were like, there's another life raft. There's something else here that can save me is extraordinary. Right. And she's only 11. Yes. I don't even think that I could do what she's done so Mm -mm. far already. No, no. I I wouldn't be able to think that quick. A fucking champ through and through. So she untied it just in time as the cabin was beginning to sink. And she got into the open water and crawled onto the raft. But to make things even worse, the line to the raft was snagged on something on the sinking ship. So it began to pull the raft and Terry Joe underwater. But then she was able to get the raft and herself free and make it, it like onto the raft, which, again, she's doing great. Right. Middle of night. 
pitch black. Yeah, in the middle of the night, right? So later during an interview, she talks about how scared she was because when she saw that Harvey left her there, right, because he knew she was alive, she knew that something bad had happened, right? And that, like, he had to do with it also mean he's holding a gun. So I cannot understand completely why she was afraid of him. And so because of that, as she's kind of struggling, she's being careful to not make noise or call out to him because she doesn't want him to know she survived. Right. What a sad feeling. Which, I mean, just quick fucking thinking. Because, I mean, I feel like I'd be, like, shrieking. I'd like to think that I have great survival skills, but I don't think I do. Before this episode, before we started recording, we were talking about how terrible our survival <laughs> skills would be for any, anything. Anything. Something comes up, we're like, you know what? We tried. Let me go. It was a good run. Let me go. I, you know, I didn't try. I just knew that I wasn't going to be helpful. Oh, no, I tried up until the point of the bad thing happening. As well. You have a kid, though, right? Like, I don't I don't have a kid I need to survive for. That's true. But we're not good survivors. We're OK with it. We understand. <laughs> so she's on the raft. She's floating. She survived on that raft for four days. Amazing. So just to paint a picture, she was only wearing a thin white blouse and pink pants. She wasn't equipped for four days in the sun. Just to put that into perspective who is right well no one is but she still at this point had no idea what happened to her father or her little sister and unfortunately that first night was very very cold it's the middle of the ocean right and so let's talk about the raft that she's on she's on a cork raft it's made so that she would have to sit on it with her legs dangling into the water Mm. The thing's only two and a half feet by five feet long. There's pictures of it. We'll post them. But it's an oval. And in the middle of the oval is netting. So like she couldn't just, you know, lay down on it. Otherwise, she'd just be fully in the water. She had to only use the edges of it. The idea of my tootsies dangling in the open ocean Mm -hmm. gives me like a fear deep in my soul. Like I'm not well thinking of it. Yeah. Yeah. So... The best way for her to stay dry was to just sit on the edge of it and, yeah, let her feet dangle outside of it. And so the next morning, that would have been Monday, November 13th, it was 85 degrees. And she didn't really have anything to help protect her from the sun, nor did she have any food or water. Wow. So the sun's beating down on this raft. The float was actually beginning to disintegrate a little bit because it's not meant for that, right? Like it's meant for a quick rescue if something happens, not necessarily someone to live on this float for days. Yeah. And there was parrotfish picking at her through the rope. And so they were biting her legs and feet. And I looked up because I don't know, like all fish to me are pretty much the same. There's like, yeah, fish are fish, right? Yeah, there's like lake fish and there's ocean fish in my head, right? Well, then there's piranhas that nibble nibble, right? And they have the sharp little lots of teeth. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, is this the type of piranha? No, this thing looks nice. Like, it looks cute. It it does until you realize what that thing in its mouth is. Scary beak. Until you realize yeah. that those are fucking teeth. Yeah. That it's got, like, that's why it's called a parrotfish, because it's got beak-like teeth. Yeah. I don't like that at all. And that's what's trying to get her. <laughs> yeah. So it's picking at her and it's to the point where her legs and her feet are bleeding. And this is day one, like daytime one. The fortitude. Amazing. So here's where it even gets worse. She needed to try her best to stay awake. And that night she accidentally fell asleep, which she's already been up for who knows how long, right? Like we don't know exactly what time she had woken up the night of everything happening. 
but it's over 24 hours, right? Yeah, and like presumably she probably didn't rest enough for that day. Right, right. So she fell asleep and she remembers having a dream that her parents were waiting for her on an airport landing <sighs> strip. And she jumps out to like greet, like to meet them, to get to them. And she actually jumped out of the raft. So she's awakened oh. very quickly, hitting the water. And luckily, the raft was still close by because think of it, middle of the ocean. When there's waves and things like that, you can easily lose your float super fast. So luckily, she was still right next to it. And she was able to hop back on. But that happening made it even more scary to fall asleep. Because if she did fall asleep again, she could lose her raft. And then that's the only thing she has to survive right now. Woof. Yeah, I can't even. I am the world's like fussiest person if I don't have sleep when I need it. I'm just in awe of her. Yeah. So the next day, that would have been Tuesday, it gave her a glimmer of hope. And then it this this whole part just makes me so sad. So she's sitting there and she sees a small red plane and it kind of circles above her. So she's like, they're going to be here to rescue me. So she takes off her shirt and she's waving it around to try to get like their attention, right? And it came so close to her that she could see the details on the plane. Oh. However, what we learn later is that, that at the angle that it was flying at, it made it so the pilot had no chance of even seeing her. And part of the reason why, one, it was hard for the plane before it was at that angle to see her. And then, of course, the angle that they were flying, I, I don't know what the what type of plane it was or why it was there. But it would have been hard to spot her either way. And the reason is because the float and her outfit were all white. She had pretty light blonde hair. And so it made it pretty hard to spot her because she just looked like the top of crashing waves or some people call them white caps, wave caps, whatever you want to call them. But the white piece of a wave that kind of stays around for a while, mm -hmm. it, I guess it would have been easy to mistake her as that. I think that before she spent a day at sea, that may be true. But think about it. Her skin was burned by then. So she was red. And then she was bloody, too. So, like, she wasn't ocean colored anymore. Like, the child who, like, fell into the ocean, yes. But the child who had spent a day at sea being bitten by rude fish, like, she would have been blonder. And, like, even in, like, the photo that they, like, they have, we'll, we'll talk about a photo that exists later. But, like, it's not as though she's, like, beet red or anything. But I would imagine, like, she was a color other than, like, just white alabaster because how could you not be at least a little bit pink if you were in the sun all day i would wonder if it was more like angle of plane than like her you see what i'm saying that made me go hmm a little bit because yeah i mean maybe i can't be in the sun for more than three hours without burning to a fucking crisp <laughs> well i think it's more that you would have to watch for it for a while yeah because yeah. if you just saw waves you'd see movement you'd see colors and Unfortunately, there's a lot of garbage in the sea, too, right? Like, there's pieces of weird ships and things that have gone in there. There's things that people throw overboard, like, whatever it may be. Nets, but in 1961, I don't know. I think that he was just in a bad place. I'm not saying he should have seen her. I think that, like, if the angle of the plane was the angle of the plane, it doesn't matter if she had, like, a neon yellow, like, flag that she was waving around and, like sparklers he wasn't gonna see her because she was in a blind spot but i just find it interesting but no one saw her right so she's sitting there and again on this day there was a ship i guess in the distance she saw the ship 
And so she tried to like frantically paddle towards it. And it was just moving too fast. She couldn't catch up. That's just so heartbreaking, right? Because she's like, she has to be exhausted. And like, she keeps having these moments of hope just to have them taken away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that afternoon, she saw some shapes in the water. And she found that they were porpoises. And they made her feel a little bit less lonely. And they actually hung out by her for hours. And in case you don't know, porpoises are similar to dolphins, but they look a bit different. And they're more closely related to narwhals and belugas. Like, I feel like they look chunkier than a dolphin. Yeah. And they've got like a stubbier nose, you know, like, that's just how I think about them. Yeah, they're very cute. I love a not terrifying or useless sea creature. Or useless. Or useless. Or lemon-like. Anywho, that night... Terry Joe recalls having another dream, and this one's about her dad, and she says she saw him sitting with a glass of red wine, and she heard him say, come on, Terry Joe, we're leaving. Oof. So the next day comes, we're now on Wednesday, and it's hot again. By this point, her muscles are aching, her skin's badly burned, and her eyes and lips are dry and painful, right? She's been relentless sun and seawater. And no water to drink. And no water. So she starts hallucinating and then goes unconscious. On Thursday, her body could no longer feel the sun or any of her burns, which means not surprisingly that she was near death. By mid-morning, she was going in and out of consciousness and woke up to a shadow of a ship by her. And it was a Greek freighter that was going through the Providence Channel in the Bahamas. And the second officer on the freighter was watching the waves with binoculars and noticed a white cap that wasn't disappearing. So remember, we're saying like she was blending into those waves. And he thought it was a fisherman at first that was on a small fishing dinghy. But then he thought if it was, it was out way too far than it should be. So he alerted the captain. And the object was about a mile away off of the starboard bow. And they decided to investigate it. And it ended up being Terry Joe on the raft. Amazing. It's wild. Yeah. So, of course, the freighter pulled her to safety. But they had to be strategic because this took a little digging. I didn't see this in a lot of the sources, but I saw it in a little clip of her book, which we'll talk about later. But I guess there might have been sharks circling. And so they had to make sure that when they got her, because she kept going, you know, in and out of consciousness, Mm -hmm. that she didn't fall into the water. Poor sweetheart. Yeah. Just I just feel... My heart breaks so much for her, right? Because this is all such a terrible experience. Just like being lost at sea, let alone the fact that you literally just lost your entire family and that Mm -hmm. it wasn't an accident. Like there's just so many horrific layers here. Right. So someone on the freighter also took a photo of her on the raft. And that's the main photo you see when you look up the story. It actually ended up being on the front page of Life magazine. And so it was just everywhere. I guess like other magazines and um, newspapers and stuff were using the same photo for a while. Yeah, it'll actually be our episode art for this episode as well. So you'll be able to see it. So now that we know that she was rescued, and we'll talk a little bit more about the details with that in a minute. I want to pivot and talk about Harvey for a few minutes. Yeah, we forgot about that asshole, didn't we? (laughs) The last we knew, he was floating away on a dinghy, right? Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. So the day after the ship sank... He was found. So he only had to do it for hours, you know, the next day. Mm. So he was found by an oil tanker called the Gulf Lion. And a crew member spotted him on the dinghy. And he was just yelling and waving his arms to get their attention. Now, what we learned, too, is that he had the body of Renee with him. And she was wearing a life jacket. But she had unfortunately passed away. 
I don't trust him. Right? We don't trust him. Get fucked, man. Exactly. Exactly. So the oil tanker, of course, grabbed him and Renee's body. In the following days, Harvey told the Miami Coast Guard a very different story from what we've already heard. He started out saying that he was the sole survivor of a grave accident. He said a sudden squall damaged the sailboat in the middle of the night. And we didn't know what a squall was because why the fuck would we? And we realized (laughs) that it was a violent wind or like a localized storm. So like not some like big storm event, just something kind of smaller. Boat terms. Boat terms. We've done or this ship before. terms. We know ship this is one's a boat, boat though. Terms. We don't know. Yeah. So some sources differ a bit, but Harvey described the main mast going through the decks and not being able to rescue anyone. So some sources differ a bit, but he described that what happened as that the main mast had gone through the decks and that he had not been able to rescue anyone. Harvey's story also included that the Duperaults and his wife were injured when the mass and rigging collapsed, and that the gas lines in the engine rooms ruptured, causing the ship to catch fire as it sank. This is all very involved. It's all very convoluted. Mm-hmm. I feel like there have to be easier ways for a ship to go down other than these theatrics. But let's continue. Harvey managed to dive overboard to get onto the dinghy, but the tangled rigging trapped everyone else. He claimed to tell everyone to abandon the ship as he jumped for the dinghy, but he didn't see anyone other than Renee, who was unconscious floating in the water in the life jacket. What a story. It also feels so incredibly calculated that he has the youngest member of the ship, right? Right. So in some sources, it gave a little bit more detail or that he gave more detail to the Coast Guard a few days later. So we'll include that, too. The other details is that he used two fire extinguishers to try to put out the fire. And that once he got into the dinghy, he tried to locate other passengers as the ship went down, but he didn't really see anyone alive. What he did claim to see, though, is that Terry Joe was floating face down in the water in her life jacket, already deceased. Mm-mm-mm. So between his stories of saying it one day and then to the Coast Guard a few days later, it all pretty much matched up. But he's saying he for sure saw them not make it off the boat, some bodies, and that he was able to pull Renee out, which was the youngest daughter. Too many details in this lie. Yeah, she was already dead by that time. Or she was already unconscious. And then we'll talk about that in a little bit. We're not sure. But she was dead when they found him. So his story was very thorough. And it seemed to answer every question and like every what if that the officers might have had. Mm. And they had no one else to interview at this time. Right? Yeah, like they didn't yeah. know. And no, no, like, remains of the boat, right? Like, they're just seeing a guy holding a dead child. Right. So what happened is after they interviewed him, the Coast Guard sent out search planes. And they were out for days looking for survivors just in case. But they didn't find anyone. And Lindsay and I were talking about this before we started recording. We're like, if they were looking for her, how did they miss her? Especially if their eyes are down looking for someone floating or like some remnants of the boat or whatever. But every source that I've seen just said like it would have been very difficult to spot her on the white raft. And that's why nowadays rafts are like orange or striped even like brightly colored or striped or something to stand out. Interesting. But still like it's so sad that they couldn't find her. Yeah. And I could also see, like, depending on the age of the ship and the age of that life raft, like, it could be get sun bleached over time. So, like, even if it wasn't originally white, it could have been, like, a very pale color. Yeah. Yeah. So, on November 15th, Harvey was allowed to return to Miami. 
but had further questioning with the Coast Guard. On the 17th, he was being questioned again. And during the questioning, someone ran into the room and yelled, there was a survivor. And this part's just wild. Yeah. Ah, to see his fucking face. To see his shitty face. So the moment, you know, they said there's a survivor, Harvey yelled out, oh my God. (laughs) And then quickly calmed himself down and added, isn't that wonderful? It's like a cartoon here. Well, I mean, the idea that like he couldn't contain his own shock is satisfying. Mm -hmm. So after learning that there was a survivor, his behavior was much different. And pretty quickly, he asked if he could be excused. And his excuse was, I'm tired and I want to go speak to my wife's family and just had some excuses. So he then checked into the Sandman Motel under a fake name. And the next day, hotel staff found his body after he died by suicide. So in the room, what he did is he used a double-edged razor and he slashed his wrists and his legs. Get fucked, man. A terrible fucking thing he did. But let's get back to Terry Joe because we prefer to talk about her. Yes. She was, again, so earlier mentioned when she was rescued by that freighter and the crew did their very best to help her. Not surprisingly, she was severely dehydrated. Captain Steelnose Cosides carried her to a spare cabin where the sailors gave her water. They used some damp towels to get the salt off of her skin and they put Vaseline on her chap lips. The captain tried to talk with her, but she was pretty out of it. And some of the sources and some of it is from her book. So it's hard to tell where, you know, some of the details came from. But I guess all of the sailors were like in tears looking at this little girl like, oh, my gosh, what did she go through trying to help her? Oh, yeah. I mean, and it just made me so sad to see someone that close to death and it being a child in the middle of the ocean by herself is just a really sad sight. Well, especially when you're somebody who is trained to like live on the open water and you know how hard it is. Yes. And you think about being a child going through that with no provisions, no training and no one else. I would imagine that they were uniquely equipped to be incredibly empathetic to her situation. Yes. Not that I don't think most people would be, but like they in particular know how hard it is. Mm -hmm. So the captain tried to talk with her, but she was pretty out of it. He was able to get things out of her, like her name and how she ended up at sea. She made some gestures to him that made him believe that her family was also lost or killed at sea. She did say Bluebell, which the captain was familiar with due to all the news reports about it. Because, I mean, it's not surprising that it would be heavily reported on that there was like, you know, a shipwreck, one survivor and like an entire family was lost. And especially considering he showed up with Renee before she went unconscious the captain was able to get her name out of her and that she had relatives in Green Bay. When she arrived at Mercy Hospital in Miami, she was in shock and she slipped into a coma. And very obviously and very reasonably, everyone is suspicious of Harvey because, again, he said that he remembered seeing her face down with a life jacket on. And what he did to himself. And when you see that photo of her in the little like life raft thing, she's not wearing a life jacket that I can see. No, no. She didn't have one. And so, and she wouldn't have taken that off, right? So at the very least, because like, I could see how you could be like, oh, maybe she was not unconscious and he didn't know. But her wearing a life jacket is a very particular detail that was not true. None of it was true. But like, it's so clear that it wasn't true. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So Terry Joe's story made the front page of newspapers and everyone was eager for her to wake up. And she finally did on November 20th. So she was questioned about the incident while she was still in the hospital, like literally in the hospital bed being questioned. 
And her story completely disproved what Harvey had been saying. And so, of course, she told her side what she saw. And she mentioned in her story that she never saw or smelled a fire. So again, like everything he was saying was not correct. I also wonder, like, if there had been a fire that she was able to escape, wouldn't her clothing have shown some sort of fire damage? Yeah. Yeah. Or her or breathing Mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So she also told them about how life on board the ship was, you know, before the incident and that everything seemed normal. She didn't remember hearing any like fights between Harvey and his wife, nor did like her family argue. It was all nice. There's a video that I was able to find, and I think it might be a press conference of after she was found and like woke up. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the man's name. He never says it, and there's no like nameplate or anything on it. But it's this man discussing Terry Joe. And I just thought it was a sweet thing to talk about because of everything she had gone through. So the man speaking talks about how composed she was during the interviews. And again, she's in a hospital bed, just woke up from a coma. And there's pictures of this too, of her like in the hospital. And he was so surprised at the amount of fortitude and courage that she showed throughout the situation. And she answered all the questions. This is his words. She answered all the questions in a very frank, forthright and honest manner. At 11, I could never. Exactly. That's what I keep thinking is like, I mean, now I could never, but 11, oh my <laughs> God, I was, no one would be talking about how composed I was. Right, right. Or that I had fortitude. I would not have gotten this far. I'm just so in awe of her. Right, yeah. But yeah, the pictures of her in the hospital, it's so sweet. She's holding like a doll and she's smiling. She's amazing in just every way. So after all these interviews, right, what they concluded is that Harvey likely killed her family and his wife. And What they suspected is that he might have killed Mary Dean to collect on her life insurance. And one of the big theories is that maybe Terry Joe's dad, Arthur, caught Harvey in the act, which may have led to the additional murders. That's a lot of people to murder. Yeah, but they're not sure. But that's one of the theories is that like her parents might have caught him in the act or one of them at least. And the sad thing is it's unknown how Renee died. We know that she drowned. But it's unknown if she was thrown overboard or if Harvey held her underwater before picking her up and putting her in the dinghy with him. Yeah. Like someone must have put the life jacket on her too, right? So we don't know when she died or how, just overall that she drowned. That's so heartbreaking. I can't get my head. There's no world in which it could ever make sense to murder, I mean, honestly, anyone, but especially little kids. Like, how do you do that? Well, let's talk about fucking Harvey, man. Investigators looked into Harvey's background and found a lot of interesting things. He fought in Europe during World War II and Korea. He flew 114 combat missions and made it to the lieutenant colonel rank. While he was in the military, he was involved in some vehicle and plane crashes, the last of which resulted in a disability that caused him to leave the Air Force. He had been married four times, and his second wife's name was Joan. Interestingly, Joan and her mother were killed in 1949 in a car crash where Harvey was driving and the car crashed through a bridge and into a river near the Air Force base where he was stationed. Interesting. Hmm. Questionable. Mary Dean was his fourth wife. They married in the summer of 1961. So they were, you know, newlyweds when this all happened. Yeah. And they had gotten jobs as skipper and crew on the Bluebell in October of 1961. So month before? Again, recently, very recently. 
After being married for only two months, Harvey took out a double indemnity life insurance policy on his wife for $20,000. And in today's money, that would be about $204,000, which inflation's big, but like, woof, right? Like he's clearly planning something if he's taking a double indemnity life insurance policy. And again, we weren't sure what that was. So according to International Risk Management Institute, a double indemnity policy is one that refers to a payment by a life insurance policy that's two times the face value when the death results from an accident as opposed to a health problem. Today, we it's often called um accidental like death or maiming. Mm-hmm. It could be that it was just really fucking horrific. So because it was an accident, this would have been $40,000, not just 20000 So- Additionally, Harvey had some other sinkings in his background, too. He had lost two other boats before, and for one of the boats that sank, he received 14000 from the government and 45000 from an insurance company. And, you know, we're talking about, like, the money that he got for other boats, but, like, he didn't get any money for the Bluebell. He didn't own it. Yeah. So I just think it's interesting, like, it doesn't make sense to me why he would do this, because even if it was for life insurance money, like, it's hard for me to wrap my head around there not being any other time that would have been more convenient than this. They could have been, like, out doing maintenance on the boat or checking something. There was no time when it was just him and Dean where he could have done this. Like, he had to murder an entire family. All around, it doesn't make sense. And I was trying to figure out, too, like, was he in, like, a tight spot where he just needed quick money or, you know, something like that, where he just needed to know a large lump sum of money was coming his way quickly? And I couldn't really find much that gave much background on, you know, what he was doing. Yeah. I just can't figure out in my head what he was trying to do initially, because I don't think his plan was to kill everyone. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. It didn't seem like he wanted to kill Terry Joe. He just thought she'd go down with it. Yeah. Well, and also, like, again, in addition to it not making sense, how is he to know that he is the only person who was armed on the ship? How is he to know that he can overpower everyone? Like, it seems like a plan with a lot of holes in it. Flaws. And I think that that's why I'm like, hmm, that's a bit that's a bit strange, too. Yeah. Yeah. I I truly don't know what he was trying to do or what his plan was. So the Coast Guard ended up turning over the case to the FBI. And some believe that some of the wreckage washed up at Smith's Point on December 11th of 1962. And this would have been about 90-ish miles northwest of where it supposedly sank. And some of the paint on the pieces that washed up matched the bluebell, but investigators say that it didn't fit the description. So there's like a big debate over whether that indeed was the bluebell or not. So let's talk about our favorite, Terry Joe, and what happened to her. She ended up going back to Green Bay to live with her aunt, uncle, and cousins. And when she was 12, she changed her name to what I believe is pronounced Terry, but it's spelled Ter, T-E-R-E. And she didn't actually discuss this event publicly until 2010. Since then, there's been several specials with her and interviews with her along with her husband and her children. And in some of the interviews, it's just, it's really sweet, but also really sad at the same time. She talks about her love for her aunt and uncle and how they took her in and treated her as their own. But she also never let go of her mom and dad and that she never got that final closure for her dad. She never saw his body. So since she never saw it, it took her years to accept that he wasn't coming back. Yeah. And so this part, like in an interview, I was like, this is one of the saddest interviews I've watched. And she's like, 
for years, up until she was around 35 is when she finally accepted he's not coming back. But for years, she would drive to North Carolina or to Florida and go to the beach and wait for him and like look for him. Oh, she's like, he's going to come back. She's like, I survived. Maybe he could like, yes, if you know, I was just a kid. What, you know, what could he do? Yeah. Yeah. And that that just like broke my heart when she was talking about it. It was so sad. So let's go to a positive light. She ended up getting married and having children of her own. She also wrote a book and we've referenced it a couple times and it's called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. Mm. And interestingly, all of her adult life, she worked in fields that involved water. And she worked to help with regulation and zoning. And she has said that she wants to help protect the ocean because the ocean saved her as a child. And it's a way to feel connected to her family. That really gets me. Right? Don't mind me. Crying. Yeah, this story really got to me. Just how she persevered through all of these hardships that were completely awful and was able to be, you know, inspiring and she's just amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Just amazing. And then here we go again, right? So she had words of wisdom in one of her interviews. She said, quote, if you're put in a situation that is challenging, you have to adapt to whatever the circumstances are and go with the flow. And I think that anybody that does this can survive. Beautiful words. Beautiful. I mean, mm, my mind is blank because I've got emotions. Right. So it's like an empowering story. It's so sad and it's so horrific. And just I'd never heard of it before. So like, you know, we, we've talked about so many other terrible murders that have transpired. But like when we've talked about ocean, we've always talked about ocean monsters or like yeah. ghost ships and things like that. Not human monsters on the ocean. Yes. Yes. Which yeah. is another level of frightening. Yeah. One of the things we talk about, I think, with a a certain regularity, is people who go through, I mean, just terrible fucking things. You know, they lose children, they lose their family, and like their perspective remains like uplifting. Yes. And, you know, she wants to protect the ocean because it protected her, or people who their children go missing and they want to make sure that other people, they never feel the pain of losing a child. And I just find that just so incredibly moving for lack of a better word. Yeah. It's been a minute since I think we've had a story quite like this or since we've, you know, we've talked about someone's story that was quite, I think, this powerful. But I think this was an interesting episode, maybe a different vibe that we normally have, a little less jovial. But like, you know, there's there's episodes when we're talking about terrible things where there's like jokes intertwined and here it's like, nope, it's just pure feeling, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Reading this and then also when we were watching some of the interviews, I know we're both like, how how did she do this? Like, how is she such like a yeah. positive person? And I know it took her years to like speak openly about it, but still, like, she's a superhero. Yeah. Trauma is fucking hard, and like being able to even talk about it at all publicly is amazing. We're gonna do a hard pivot, you know. As always, we want to know what you think about this case, and had you heard of it, you know, that's the huge. We want to know all your thoughts on this case, and all the ways that you know to reach us, which are all the social medias and the Bat Bonfire on Facebook. I also wanted to mention that we have some fun deadlines coming up. Not to do the hardest of pivots, but here we are. Our Podiversary episode is coming in early October. And so we would love for you to share your scary stories with us. And I would like to point out in this moment that if you've got a powerful story that, you know, you want to share because you went through something and you learned something big, 
it doesn't have to just be scary. Like, it can be something that you're like, this was a thing that was, like, tough and I made it fucking through. We want those, too. We want, honestly, I want to hear any story that anybody wants to tell at any point in time. But, like, I just want to say, like, happy endings are welcome as well. And I think that, you know, I don't think we've ever said that, but definitely yeah. welcomed. You can send a written version of your story or you can send us a voice recording of you telling your story. We we kind of we have a little bit of preference for that second one because we like to hear from <laughs> you guys and because you hear us all the time. I mean, hopefully, hopefully if you're listening, that doesn't upset you. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's nice to mix it up. And I, I really like hearing other people tell their own stories because, you you know, it's just it's just different when you're telling your own. Well, and we get to know a lot of the people through like our social media like the people yeah. that reach out to us all the time and then when they send their voice i get really excited oh yes to just like put a name and a voice together in my head yeah i'm suddenly reading all messages in that voice oh yeah exactly every time we get a few of the messages you know who you are we read it in your voice now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. also we're working on it the details will be out by the time we post this episode but we're going to have a contest along with it with our potiversary episode So head to our social media and check out the details because you might get some entries if you share your story with us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And by might, we mean you definitely will. Yeah, for sure. And you get more if we get to hear your voice because we are not above bribing you with entries to a contest. Absolutely. To win. Look, Amanda's saying we're going to give you details later. I'm going to tell you now. It's a beautifully curated spooky basket from Amanda. It's stunning. Does it have the one and only in current existence true creep basket? Yes. Yes, it does. Handmade <laughs> gorgeously by Amanda. Yeah, you're going to get some fun things. I just, I'm, I'm going to, let me just, let me just hype you up. Thank you. Cause it's very cute. I really like it. It's a cute vibe. And Amanda's got excellent spooky taste. There's a lot of ghosties. Normally when I go shopping, I go, especially around spooky season, one for me, one for Lindsay, <laughs> one for Buffett. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you might end up being like twinsies with us with some things. Let's all decorate our homes the same. Yes, yes. So we'll have details on our social media. So please look at it and enter the contest. Lastly, we're coming up on another deadline, and that's for our fall card. So if you take a peek at our Patreon and you join our Fire Yeti tier or higher, you will get this wonderful fall card, which is uniquely created by both of us. And we are so stoked about this year's card. We talked about it for a long time, like an hour before we started recording today of like all of the ideas, all the true creeps, references and inside jokes and how we want to integrate it into the card this year. And we were just going through our episodes like, oh, I remember that joke or we could say the name of it. And we'd have something dumb that we added to that episode that we just can't wait to put on a card. My favorite memory was remembering the rice doll. That was a fun one. I was like, oh, yes. But also a part of our uh, pre-recording, I don't want to say ritual, but it is a ritual. Our pre-recording time together is inevitably we begin to shop. So we're shopping for, I'm like, this is some shaving oil that I've used. And I'm like... And another thing, like in like we're we're we've moved on to talk about something else, but we just kind of like randomly keep interjecting different references. Again, we're hyped about it, and it's always a fun time. And the deadline for that is September fifteenth, so we're getting pretty close. Yes, yes. So that's all our deadlines. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all our de- for, that's for all now. our deadlines, guys. Uh, <laughs> if you could, to tweet 
we got we got real business real quick and then we got weird about it and then we got awkward and then just had no that's that's end of outline that's, it. that's end, end of, of outline episode. right there yeah so have a great weekend and thanks for creeping with us thanks for listening and as always a special thank you to our patrons who support us via patreon please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you yes you can begin to haunt the dump guard vortexes or even become a scorching sasquatch also in our show notes you can find the link to our website more information on our sources our social media handles and our merch store we'd love for you to keep creeping with us so if you like this episode please subscribe rate review and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts i beg of you (laughs) and we're sorry there's not so many bloopers this time not 19 minutes like last time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> also, I just want to quickly say, hi, Greg. Hi, Greg. We recently went to St. Augustine. We were in this gift shop and there, randomly there was like a dinosaur, like an ocean dinosaur tooth. And I was like, let me look at this pile. And I start like, I mean, frantically shuffling through it. And the man is like, can I help you? And I was like, no one can. <laughs> no one can. You should have been like, what I'm looking for is. Oh, I mean, I did say, tooth. I was like, I am specifically looking for a basilosaurus. And he's like, we don't have that. Because I mean, again, it's a gift shop. There's like <laughs> big lollipops and like snacks and t-shirts, that say St. Augustine. And a surprisingly haunting snowman. I'll put a picture on our Instagram, but he's just in the corner. And I was like, huh! and I saw him. Flawless. Flawless. I mean, it I was. I was happy he didn't go, what the fuck is that? Or did you make it up? You should have picked his brain more and been like, how much do you know about the Basilisk? He was eager to assist. He was like very, clearly very bored and was like, can I help you do anything? Because I am bored to tears. Oh, I've been there. I get that. Haven't we all? <laughs> but anyway. Well. <laughs> All right, down one tangent already. Be <laughs> I was like, three minutes into our recording, and I've already taken us on a journey. <laughs> well, we're going to do this every episode, so it's fine. They chartered a two-masted Christ. So they... <laughs> We've begun already. <laughs> the other details is that he used two fire and... He used... <laughs> the sole survival. Why can't I talk suddenly? Gravel in my mouth. We haven't recorded in weeks, okay? Like, I feel like at first, too, when we were starting so today, good, though, I felt we were like, like, how do we record again? How do we interact with each other? Like, we've been talking for three hours before this. Yeah. Like, we're, Amanda, recorded. it's nine. We started talking at 5 p.m. My time. Uh, four hours. Okay. Yeah. We've been chatting. Ma'am.